0: Thank you. It's good to be back in the pulpit today. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 15, verse 5, for the preaching of God's word this morning. Revelation, chapter 15, verse 5. Shortly here, we will read through chapter 16, verse 21. Theft or thievery or bandits, stealing, petty theft. We don't like it. We know there's a command against it, don't we? They say there's no honor among thieves. You ever heard that phrase? There's no honor among thieves. There are Robin Hood types that reconsider thievery in light of the common good. I'm told there's a streaming new show about a thief gone good that's supposed to raise age-old questions about ends and means when it comes to such matters. I don't know anything about it. But we know there's a command against taking what isn't your own. That much we know, don't we? We know usually... That robbery can be preceded by the word armed over the force of a gun to take what doesn't belong to someone. That other crimes run together with robbery or thievery. Often it doesn't stop at a theft that's petty. And we don't want to be known as common or even celebrity thieves, now do we? In fact, if I were to call you a thief, you'd take great offense. Probably because it's not true, I would hope. But is it? Are we thieves? I'm reminded of the parable of the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler asserted to Jesus that he was missing something for salvation, but that he kept all the commandments, he thought. Jesus offered a command specific to that rich young ruler in that moment. A command that would expose the heart of the matter and the heart of the man. Sell your stuff and follow me. Jesus cut to the heart. His stuff was his Messiah. And he had a lot of stuff. He felt like he'd earned it, I'm sure. He wouldn't be the sort of man I wouldn't surmise that would support international missions or sacrifice principle over interest to see the Word of, the God, word of God rightly preached in his day. So the rich young ruler went away sad. And I don't want us to go away sad today. However, today's text falls into the taxonomy of a hard text. There's nothing easy about the text we're about to read. And central to mine and your receiving this text as holy writ is seeing ourselves as thieves. In particular, As thieves of God's glory. John Calvin wrote as much in the Reformation. John Piper says there's hardly more a central theme in Scripture than the glory of God. And we'll see that today in our text when we read it in just a moment. The glory of God is going public with God's infinite worth. Piper writes, God's glory is the radiance of His holiness. As we sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. You would expect and say His holiness. But it's His glory that the earth is filled with. It is His attribute of holiness. It is the attributes of God. His manifold, infinite, worthy, valuable perfections that reflect His glory. God can't not be God. He can't can't not be who He is. He is who He is. He's absolutely consistent. And we will see His glory in the preaching of His attributes. You see, today, He's just and holy and eternal and almighty and true, just to name a few. In the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, The Hebrew word kabod is used hundreds of times to express the glory of God. In the New Testament, the Greek word doxa, as well as in the Septuagint, is used to explain the word glory, worth. The human problem in our idle factory-making hearts is robbery. We've robbed God of glory due His name. And God, in His never-wrongedness, is profoundly unhappy about it. He's profoundly displeased with our robbing Him of His glory, that is, due His name, as if we could. God is mad at me and you for where we've thieved His glory. We talk so much about how this or that generation is... Angry with God. Well, let me tell you this morning afresh. God is angry with us, for where we've robbed Him of His glory. Your're living for yourself, your puffed upness with pride, your demand to answers to questions that you don't even understand about the foundations of the world. Your demand for signs to signify God's power. When he's already said that the only sign will be, that will be given to such sign mongers is one to the powers of old like the Ninevites in Jonah's time or the Pharisees in Jesus' time. That is the sign to repent. To turn from your sin. To metanoia. To have a change in your thinking. You'll see that word in the text we're about to read. That word repent is for the new covenant believer too. Revelation is for the Gentile believer the same as for the Jew. The book opens declaring such with letters to the Gentile churches. We must repent for making God mad by stealing glory for ourselves. You know this biblically, even if you haven't expressed it as such. One of the first verses that you memorize as a believer is Romans 3.23. You see? For all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. We're glory thieves. We fall short of God's glory. And the allness is everyone in the human race. We've all sinned. Each of us has sinned. And Romans goes on to say that the wages for that sin is eternal death, eternal separation from God. And so we will need an amazingly generous offer from God if we are going to be acquitted of capital crimes against the Creator, aren't we? If we're going to be known as something other than glory thieves, we're going to need an amazing gift from God. And there is good news to be had in this painted picture that I'm trying to discuss and share and articulate and express But it's only good news painted against the backdrop of bad news. The bad news is that from Adam, our first parent, to Cain, to Noah's society, to Babel, to Egypt, to all the ites next to Israel like the Canaanites in their civil fallenness, the Israelites themselves in their civil fallenness when they fall, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and Rome, and the papal Middle Ages, and the Muslim caliphates, and the Turkish invaders, and the fascists, and the communists, and even crony capitalists. The bad news is we're all rotten until we're not. Damned until we're not. Unsaved until we are. That's the backdrop of the good news. And that's why so much of the Bible is written with a tone of judgment. Because as one author said, God gets glory in salvation through judgment. And so as I read today, that's the backdrop. We are glory thieves and there is no honor among us. But we will see how through honoring God, we can find His good purpose for our eternal lives. So as I read... In chapter 15, the verses that I read, I want you to see how patient God is with men. Number one. And number two, as I, see, as I read in the first 11 verses of chapter 16, I want you to see how worthy men are of God's wrath. And then in the final verses, 12 through 21, I want you to see how permanent God's eternity will be for everyone, for all of us, for every person every cre- ever created from the foundations Of the world. So let's hear the text today on those three scores how patient God is with men, how worthy men are of God's wrath, and how permanent God's eternity will be for everyone. Hear the word of the Lord in chapter 15, verses 4 and following. I'll pick up on verse 4, even though the last time I preached, I preached it. But for context, it says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Verse 3, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Verse 8. "...the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory." The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their works, of their deeds. Verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for a battle on the great day of, the God, of God the Almighty. Now, a bracketed phrase of Jesus here. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assembled them at the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. Armageddo, Armageddon. Verse seventeen. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and the loud voice came from the temple, from the throne, saying, "It is done." And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great Earthquake, such as there's never been since man was on earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountain were to be no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones about one hundred pounds each from heaven fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God. They, the people cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Of course, the plague of the hail reminiscent of one of the plagues against Egypt as recorded in the book of Exodus with their hardened hearts. May God bless the reading of His Word that ministered grace unto the hearers. First, how patient God is with men. How patient God is with men. We see this in chapter 15, verses 4 to 8. It's important to note from the onset that God is not like me and you, He's not like us. Psalm 8 says, Who is man that you are mindful of him? O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who are we, men and women, people, that He would be mindful of us? Does he owe us mindfulness? And then it says in praise, "How majestic is your name in all the earth, showing that the Psalter understood His place in the universe. Revelation 15:4 sings a song of wonder about God's glory. It asks, "Will you not glorify the name?" And then it seeks to answer that question between the two chapters. Will you not fear and glorify the name of the Lord? Only the Lord is holy. Who will not fear and glorify the name? Who would thieve glory from God? Who would have the audacity to do such? Would nations have the audacity to do such? To deflect their worship from the Almighty God and to give it to the the beast through the worship of themselves. God is not like us, and how patient God is with men. When the tabernacle and Solomon's temple were open, no one could get too close to God. Every time God appears to someone in Scripture, we call it a theophany. The people are remiss. They fall down. They can't look on. They're borderline blinded. Think of the apostle Peter, who was struck by the glory of God once, and started straight up confessing his sin as an unworthy man, as a glory thief. Just get away from me. I'm not good enough to be in your presence. Just get away from me, Jesus. You remember this? No more turfiness about being called a glory thief would have been had by Peter in that moment. No pride. You know, the Bible says pride cometh before the fall. But a humble man, he can be exalted. John the Apostle knew Christ as a young man himself the author of this last book of the Bible, John the Apostle. Now, when he sees the vision that's in our Revelation, he's an old imprisoned man. He was worshiping on the island of Patmos on the Lord's Day. And John caught this last vision of the Bible, Revelation. And in this portion of this last vision of the Bible, he sees glimpses into heaven like the curtain is peeled back. It says in verse 5, He looked, he saw, He saw the tent of meeting in heaven, and no one could go in right away. After the seven angels came out, no one could go into the presence until the seven bowls full of plagues were finished. Verse 8 says it in chapter 15, and verse 1 says finished as well. God creates his own smoke. We don't need fog machines in our worship services. That nonsense. The sanctuary in heaven was filled with the smoke from the glory of God. God makes His own smoke. There's a play on words you can't see there with His power. There's a noun. The man's not able to enter. He can't come in. And there's a verb. Dunamis and dunamai. It's about ability. And God has the ability to clear the room on command. Man does not have the dunamis, the ability to enter on his own. No man could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Look at chapter 15, verse 8, for the way that this is exposed. It says, "...the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His dunamis, from His ability, His power, and no one could enter, no one could dunami, the verb, the sanctuary, until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished, until it was telos, until it was, telos, until it was completed, it was finished, it was accomplished." Lots of sevens for God, isn't there? Sevens and sevens and sevens. You see this in Revelation. You see it here in our text today. Seven is considered a number of completion, like the seven days in a week. You don't cut it short with just the work of man in six days. We consider the Lord on the seventh day, that every day might be rendered holy unto the Lord. When we come together on the Lord's day, we consider this principle of Sabbath, this principle that the Lord is Lord of heaven and earth. Has created everything. We've seen sevens in Revelation. We've seen sevens with churches and seals and trumpets and historical figures and now bowls. These cycles, not chronology, but cycles, roll out fuller and fuller in our understanding of the totality of God's judgments, of his wrath on rebellious sinners. You won't want to be a rebellious sinner after reading Revelation 16. When it's read aloud and you hear it, it's almost right to repeat the refrain, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Because there will be some that will not hear, but there will be some that do. And ours is a proclaiming ministry. Ours is a preaching of the gospel. Ours is a ministry of telling. So that he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You don't want to persist in black sin after seeing the white, pure holiness of God glorified in this passage. You can only see it by faith now, but you can hear it literally by receiving the words of this passage. The angels are reflecting glorified perfection. Listen to verse 6 of chapter 15. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. And how are they clothed? They're not, they're not naked. They're not unrighteous. They're not ashamed like we read in chapter 16 of those rebels against God. These seven angels in their perfect obedience, they're clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests, picking up on themes from the Old Testament prophets to be sure, But the meaning here is purity. The meaning here is absolute alignment with the God who is holy. That's what we have to look forward to in our glorified state as believers is glorification, pureness. Against the backdrop of what we were, how bright we will be. You know, only the blood of Christ can make black sinners pure. Only the blood of Christ can make those darkened in their sin, stained with sin, bleached out white. We must humble ourselves. We must repent of our impurity. Literally, where you've acted unchaste, where you've sinned sexually, you must repent of it. I don't want you to be judged for it. You must confess your sin to Christ and receive His sacrifice for you to the last drop. And you must take pain. Hear me on this. You must take pain to teach your children and your children's children purity. No matter where you have failed in your endeavors, if you have found eternal life, you now have been tasked with a holy obligation to speak the merits of sexual morality to your little ones. Do not out of guilt or glamour think God is satisfied with you providing medical cover for the promiscuity of your teenage son or daughter. By no means. God does not overlook it. You hold the line of God's glory and trust Him with all of it. Purity is noteworthy because we haven't been. God is not like us. He knows better than us. And He calls us to pure whiteness. And that will become clear and clear in chapters 17, 18, and 19 as we study Babylon the harlot. But you know, God, even though He's not like us, Even though he's more powerful than us, he hasn't squashed us like a bug. We're still here, aren't we? We're breathing. He's been so patient with us. But on the authority of the words in 2 Peter, we should not count patience with God as some kind of lethargy, like he's lethargic. God is not lethargic, God's punctual. He'll be right on time with everything that he does when he consummates time with the second coming of Christ. It'll be right on time. And we don't know the time. No man knoweth the hour nor the day. It's speculative at best when we muse on about these things. But we know a few things from what we've already read. We must pursue purity because God is pure and holy. We must pursue patience with sinners because God is exercising patience with sinners right now. He hasn't finished it yet. We must not be lethargic with the things of God because God is glorious. We must be on time with our gospel proclamation because God has commanded us to and because God is always right on time. Now we've considered God's patience with us. Let's consider how worthy man is of God's wrath. How worthy man is of God's wrath. Look at chapter 16, verse 1 in your Bibles. It says Then John heard, I, John speaking in the first person, a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, ostensibly, this is the divine voice, telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath. Of God, so, so John has seen, just to pause right there for, for a moment, and, and to think about context, John has seen, John hears heavenly realities that will come to be fully finished. The voice from the temple sanctuary is loud. It's real loud. Let that kind of stick out to you. It's a loud voice. That's the descriptive language. And the voice commands the seven angels two imperative actions. One of them is the two-letter word, go, and one of them is the four-letter word, pour, or, or pour out. So go, and it sounds sort of like Great Commission language. And you're going, go ye, therefore go. So the angels are commanded to go, and then to pour out from heaven on the earth wrath. The seven bowls of the wrath of God. Every time, the heavenly command has earthly realities. Every time. Unlike us in our yet unglorified state, the angels immediately hop to it and obey God's command when they're commanded to. They go, they pour. And we see the first five fully finished bowls poured out now in this second point, how worthy men are of God's wrath. So what does angel number one do? Look at verse two. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. So angel number one obeyed. Target is those who are worshiping the beast's image instead of Christ. Target is those who take the mark of the beast, the mark of man, the work of man to the neglect of the blessing of God, of giving glory to God. And the target of this plague is persistent, impenitent unbelievers. Source. You know, you don't have to be an avowed Satanist to do his bidding. All you have to do is not follow Christ. The myth of neutrality is debunked in the Bible. I think of literature too, like the screw tape letters. The demons are fine with your lethargy toward spiritual things. No matter what ritual rites you may have taken, if they're meaningless to you, the Lord calls us not to lethargy, but to focus and alertness on His cause. The myth of neutrality is debunked in Scripture. God's people know what is in a man, and they know they cannot follow men, but they have sold out to the man, Christ Jesus. That's us. He's the only Savior. He's the only ultimate man. When angel number one obeys, the unbelievers are struck with sores. Angel number two obeys, and every living thing, or, or soul is actually the Greek word, every living thing in the sea faces death. This is following like the trumpets in Revelation, similar to the Egyptian plagues. And it's a remonstrance to the devil standing by the sea in chapter 12, verse 17, as if he's some kind of a conqueror Ultimately. Like lost sea battles, so the last battles of Satan are but flailing in the night. God will win the battle for us, and He has won the battle for us, and He will win the battle for us. So angel number two brings in this bowl filled. Imagine a bowl filled to the brim, full of the wrath of God, the white-hot wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God. And when he pours out the bowl into the sea, there's no more commerce. There's no more political gain. It's filled with blood and death, bloody death. And with the the theme of blood continues. If you look at verse 4, that is into the rivers. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And they became blood. And so when when that angel number three obeys, similar blood in the rivers are as was in the sea. And in angel number four, down further, sun scorches sinful man. In angel number five, down further, the, the, the beast's throne room has the lights go out and they can't see to operate and the throne of the beast, the powers in opposition to God's heavenly throne room are thrown into darkness and about this time in the narrative it's as if God knows that we need some help that the narrative here of the wrath of God upon the second coming of Christ might be too much for our yet unfully sanctified ears to hear and to bear God knows we need encouragement in the midst of this reading it's as if between verses 4 and 5, God knows we will need a reminder of his rationale, of his justice in judgment, and of the second point, man's worthiness of God's wrath. He's absolutely worthy to receive this wrath. So let's consider that here in these verses, because verses 5, 6, and 7 provide that break, that little brief respite in verse 15 well, too. from the narrative flow of the wrath of God, the final wrath. Not partial like earlier in Revelation, not a third of it or a portion of it. The whole thing, the the finish wrath of God. That's the theme as we're moving toward the end of Revelation. That's the picture of it's being painted. So examine verses 5 through 7 with me on that score. Look at verse 5. God is just. Do you see that? The angel in charge pronounces, just you are. It's going to be there in verse 7 too. He's just. Just. Justice of God. Whatever injustice exists now, it will not exist in glory. God is just and He will enact justice. God is holy, we see here. His holiness is on display in these chapters. In the midst of this judgment, God is eternal. It says He was and He is. It comes from the Greek idiom, this refrain does, into the ages of the ages. It's translated in verse 7 of chapter 5, forever and ever. So He was and He is and He is to come into the ages of the ages forever and ever. This is His eternality is what's being declared here by the angel in charge, the white, pure angel in charge. God's almighty. He's able, remember? He can shut out who He wants to shut out from where He wants to shut them out and let in who He wants to let in from where He wants to let them in. This is the by-faith declaration that we hear by reading these Scriptures. This is the nature of God, the attributes of God. He's just, holy, eternal, almighty, true, God's true as a judge. He's not like us. These are attributes pointing to the whole picture, to God's glory. He's making us as believers like Christ. That's true. But that job's not done yet. So we need these reminders of His justice in His judgments. God is incapable of being unjust. So insofar as this book speaks of God, and it does and it speaks of God's judgment, and it does, then God cannot be unjust in the judgments that He levies. He is incapable of being unjust just the same as He's incapable of being impure, unholy, of being temporary in nature, of being unempowered, or speaking falsehoods. It's the devil that misrepresents the truth with lies and urges impurity and is a created thing. And lacks ultimate power and punches above his weight class in the realms beyond flesh and blood. Not God. Your God is just. It's important to remember the justness of God in the midst of a passage about bowls filled with wrath. God refuses to overlook sin. There was false teaching amongst the churches, and it's talked about, it's recorded in Revelation 2 and 3. In Revelation 2, the church at Thyatira, for one, Pergamum, struggling with false teachers. And the Lord Jesus gives them some strong words about not allowing the false teaching in the church. And we've taught on that, but it bears repeating, that our teaching should be in line with the Word of God. Aspirationally, perfectly, no, but aspirationally, we should seek to stay with the Word of God and the clear teaching of the Word of God. Amen? God refuses to overlook false teaching, and He refuses to overlook lethargy and our sin. If you think about Revelation chapter 3, the church at Sardis and the church at Laodicea. The church at Philadelphia was on the right path, but the church at Sardis and Laodicea, they're warned in these terms. Behold, I'm coming like a thief in the night. Wake up! Quit, quit with your lethargy. Get back on track. You're going to be found naked, He tells the church at Laodicea. A shameful thing. It's important to remember that what is taught matters. And, and, you know, in the 20th century, I know this from going to seminary and reading some center-left literature, theology, some have talked about Christ on the cross and His relation to the Father as some kind of cosmic child abuse. A few of you will know about this. Many of you won't, but just take it from me. False teachers call Christ on the cross as God the Son, cosmic child abuse. The placing of the only ever perfect man on the cross to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, we call that propitiation in our communion time. The Bible calls it that. As if that could be some kind of cosmic child abuse. I believe the same ones who call The cross, the apex of human history, the central point in our faith, I believe those that call that unjust will call the bowls filled with wrath unjust too. If they know better than God the nature of the atonement, why wouldn't they know better than God the nature of wrath? The same ones who call that unjust will call the bowls filled with wrath unjust, but it isn't. The Bible says that God is just. And so when he levies his white-hot wrath against the unbelievers, he will still be just. The word breaks us. we don't break him. We don't break his will. Our will breaks. You get that? Don't believe the propaganda. The propaganda will thicken in times of intense spiritual warfare prior to Christ's return, a return that we're hastening the day of, we want to see. Don't believe the assaults on the character of God as defined in His Word. God gets glory in salvation through judgment, a wonderful book title and theme of the whole Bible's theology indeed. He put your judgment as a believer on Christ in order to give you salvation. That means judgment happened. You just didn't have to take the judgment. So the cosmic child abuse argument plays well here because God was just there and He will be just then. This means we bring glory to His name, don't we? This is why Ephesians says three times in the first chapter that things are done in salvation to the praise of His glory. That's why we sing, to the praise of His glory, right? It's a wonderful song. Applause of His recognition would be another rendering of that phrase. Salvation is guaranteed to the saints to the praise of His glory. Think about that. So we sing, and we pray, and we labor, and we speak, and we serve the cause of Christ because our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We have had His righteousness put on us. We tend to be okay with the plagues of Egypt in the past, but are we okay with the plagues on God's enemies in the future? The same just God has decreed it so, and His decrees are righteous and celebrated by the pure heavenly beings. So if we have any problem with God getting glory through judgment, the judgment problem is all ours to take on. We fault in our judging, but God does not fault in His. Just is Jesus. Jesus is just. And we come to Jesus just as we are. We don't bring something to it. Except for our sin. Now, clearly, that is not to say that the unbelievers in my hearing are without hope. They're not. God's patience is on display by the fact that you haven't died and faced Him yet. But you'll never be saved in your pride. You'll never be saved coming smugly to Jesus and saying, You know, I think we can make a good business arrangement here. That is not the gospel's effect on a contrite, regenerate human being. The gospel's effect is to break you before it takes you and makes you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that every regenerate person in this room has received. And it is a gospel that you must receive in order to inherit eternal life. Because all of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our earnings and wages for that is eternal death. He's offered that free gift, but we must receive it. Yet to all who believe in him, who receive him, John says in another place, he gives us the right to become children of God, but receive we must. The rationale for continued judgment for these fully finished plagues is the beast's followers. The unbelievers is continual unwillingness to repent of their sin against all opportunity they buy into the world's logic of building a civilization a babel devoid of god you see it if you if you look down at verses 9 and then verse 11 in verse 9 it says that they even though they were in pain the unbelievers are in pain they curse the name of god or they blaspheme the name of god that's a greek word so your translation may say blasphemed. They blasphemed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent. And what did they not give him? You see that? Same, same similar thought in verse 11. They cursed God. They blasphemed God of heaven in their pain, and they did not repent. Even in their affliction, they weren't driven to repentance for their ergon, their deeds, their works. Instead, they didn't repent. They robbed God of his glory, right? And God's mad about it. He is rightly angry with those who would seek to supplant his glory. From the world scene. We are the ones that make his name famous. We make it known. Come what may. That's what Satan did in the fallen heaven. That's what Adam did when he followed Satan in the garden. Did God really say that? Can you really trust his word? God's holding you back from your destiny. God has some flaws. God's false. God's word can't be trusted. That's blasphemy. And that's exactly what the enemies of God charged Jesus with, isn't it? You remember? He's on this this kangaroo court trial of a thing. And they say, that's blasphemy. He claims to be God. And it would have been. Except he was and is. And that's our problem, right? We put ourselves in a place of God. That's what it means to be a thief of glory. We steal what's his. And as glory thieves, we commit blasphemy. But we don't have to stay there. That's not where we stay as believers, as glory thieves. As prone as we are to go back into seeking our own glory, he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Jesus did not commit blasphemy because he wasn't his God, as we've said. He's the second person of the true trinity. What you'll see... In this text is a false trinity that was brought out during the earlier Mark of the Beast passage a few chapters ago and that comes out again here. Satan is propagating a knockoff God, a dragon, a beast, and a prophet with slimy, frog like things to say. But before we get to that, with our third and final point, let me just wrap up the second point by saying this The rationale for final judgment is that unbelievers keep on blaming god that they are guilty by association for the shed blood of christ and his followers and that they refuse in their refusal to repent they ongoingly rob god of his due glory that's that's the rationale they do the opposite of what job did remember job's going through suffering and what is it that job is told to do why don't you just go ahead and curse god and die why don't you blaspheme god and die And even though Job had questions and he gets corrected at the end of the book because he had some apologetic questions that God says, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know how to ask the right questions. But what does he actually get right in the book? What do we know about Job he gets right? Job says, should I take blessing from God and not woe? He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Still in my suffering, I will choose to say what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Would you say that with me today? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is that what we say when suffering comes? The Bible speaks in Colossians of us filling up the afflictions of Christ. The anticipation is that we will suffer for this cause, as He suffered indeed. I'm reminded of the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13, where he says to this effect that, His suffering that he endures actually is for others, that it helps others. It helps suffering is for the glory of another, Ephesians 3.13 intimates. And we don't have to bleed in order to suffer for our faith, now do we? Marginalization, lack of wages, economic sanctions. Have you done sufficiently Christian things in your life to face some kind of backlash at any point? Maybe this next stanza about waking up is for you. Have you believed sufficiently Christian things to struggle intellectually with God as being just in his judgments? That's our decision here, and I think the Lord knows that we'll struggle here. And I think that's why the text is laid out the way that it is, coming to crescendo with God's Getting glory and salvation through judgment, with the judgment portion coming into full flower as the book unfolds. How worthy men are of God's wrath. And then, as one missionary famously said, that thus makes the gospel worthy of all acceptation, isn't it? The gospel is worthy of being accepted because. Man is worthy of wrath, and God offers us this gospel. He's He's graciously made a provision. He's provided one way out from underneath our default designation. The right wrath on us, the plagues. And what it requires is the repenting of your prior works of sin and believing in Him. That's what it requires. There's only one name under heaven whereby men must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. But these bowls are reserved for the unrepentant, unconcerned, unpure, self-glorifying ones. So we've seen how patient God is with men to this point, how worthy men are of God's wrath. And we're going to quickly and finally see verses 12 to 21, a very familiar theme, but an important theme. That is how permanent God's eternity will be for every single person. The permanency of eternity for every single person. Look down with me at chapter 16, verse 7. It is what they deserve. That word deserve means worthy. What are they worthy of? They're worthy of wrath. Why are they worthy of wrath? Because they are to drink blood because they were blood shedders. They got what they deserved. And chapter 12 says they are tripling down. They've gone past doubling down on their rightness in the face of God's wrongness. It says the sixth angel, angel number six obeyed and he poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, verse 12. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east, the kings coming from the east. The river Euphrates was widely known in the ancient world as, an, as a, a protection against invading armies. The Romans saw it that way against would-be invaders and so did other armies of old. And the Euphrates was... Not the Euphrates drying up would make it not a good separation and protection against invading armies. It's a way of saying, it's a bit of a metaphor for saying that in the white hot wrath of God as the angels are doling out these plagues, these judgments at God's behest, there won't be anything to keep you from God's wrath. There will be no last minute insurance policy and protection. God's wrath is full for the self-glorifying and repentant ones. And This Euphrates dries up, it says, and it says in uh, verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. We've already talked about that a bit. The false trinity, their slimy, false speech. Verse 14, for they were demonic spirits, to clarify, they did perform signs. So the evil ones can perform signs too. Signs are not always the best indication of truth from false, by the way. It says that they, they assembled or gathered them for battle on the great day of the God, God the Almighty. And I'm going to skip verse fifteen for just a moment, verse sixteen says, and they assembled them at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Talked about that a minute ago. It says, Then the finality of things, look mirroring the seven trumpets in more fullness. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple and a throne, saying, It is done. That that sounds like something we've heard before, right? It is finished. It is done. Salvation, judgment. Both. God is just in both. Verse 18, and there, this, we've seen this, this scene before the whole cosmic order upheaval, thunder and lightning, and a great earthquake. You see hailstones coming down. You know, even if you can hold up 100 pounds, you can't hold them up with gravity coming out of the sky at you. Jerusalem split into three parts, cities fall, Babylon not forgotten. That's for chapter 17 through 19. We'll get to that. God's wrath is just. Islands and mountains as makeups shifting around. And still, at the end of verse 21, and still, defying all theological logic, they continue to blaspheme God. They won't repent. Still. That's the hallmark of an unbeliever in all of eternity. They will not repent of their sin. They will not give God glory. They won't do it. Now, it's interesting here. It says the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. That reminds me of the second chapter of Ephesians, where it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince. Of the power of the air. This wrath poured out into the air. The spirit that is now, it says in Ephesians, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We all once lived in that. Wrapped up together with the beast, carrying on the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature not children of righteousness, but children of what? Wrath. Like what? All the rest of mankind. But God. Being rich in mercy. See how against the backdrop of our being vessels of wrath, you see how Him redeeming us is so much beautiful? How could we quibble with His means when He's offered us something so rich to make us sons and daughters in the kingdom? Against that wrath, God, this great love and how He's loved us, that's love, isn't it? That's the real definition of love, isn't it? A sacrificing love. A covenantal love. An enduring love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, what He'd done for us, He made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved, isn't it? And He sees us already raised up with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As all of this already having taken place, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. In the midst of all this hard, tough text, there's encouragement for us as believers. Look at verse 15. That's an encouragement for us. These words of Jesus, we saw words of Jesus in the first three chapters. We see what some would refer to as a red-letter verse here, although the whole book is of Jesus. And here's what it says. Behold, I am coming like a thief. And this is the third of seven blessings. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not be exposed. Consider that with me. In conclusion, I'm coming like a thief. The blessing comes to the one who stays awake. Wake up. Scripture war, war, warns us against lethargy. God is not lethargic because he hasn't called to account yet, and he doesn't call us to lethargy. He calls us to purity, to ongoing repentance, calls us to seek out the word, to apply it, not to be haphazard with it. This is our God. Blessed are the ones that are waiting for His coming. Aren't we waiting for His coming? Hastening the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ. Waiting and waiting. I love that song we sang, when you can't make sense out of the tumult going on around you. Christ has got it. Hastening the day of the Lord, it's coming. And I think the first part of that verse is so timely for us. It says in chapter 16, verse 15. That's why I started the sermon the way that I did. I am coming like a thief. It says it in chapter 3, verse 3, 2. It says it in Thessalonians. We read it in Thessalonians whenever we did the prayer confession earlier in the service. I'm coming like a thief. Jesus return. There won't be time to get ready. You have to get ready now. You have to repent now. The day of the Lord is the day of the Lord. And I want you to know there won't be time then, but I want you to know there is time now. And some of you will protest, but I've lived so much sinful life, Pastor Matt. And I want to re- reflect with you back on the thieves on the cross. You know, if that wasn't an 11th hour conversion, I don't know whatever ever was. Remember, Jesus was accused of being a thief, although he wasn't. He was accused of being a blasphemer, although he wasn't. And before the it is done that was cried out on the cross by Jesus himself what happens with Jesus but that he is nailed to a cross with an appropriate title over his head although they were mocking him as king king of kings, king of the Jews and they put him between two common thieves didn't they? and you remember what happened? they were reviling him and one of them apparently reviled him right on into eternity and that very day he knew of God's wrath and judgment but the other one He had a turning, a second thought, didn't he? In his mind, he met to nailed, he repented. He had a changing of his mind. And he said, hey, we're here because we're thieves. But that guy, he's not a thief. Remember? And what did Jesus say to that thief? He said, today. He didn't say later. He said, this day, what? You will be With me, where I'm going, it's referred to as paradise. So it is for you as well, unbeliever. Eleventh hour conversions are still conversions. There won't be time when the seventh bowl gets filled out, but there's time right now. Receive Christ. Have assurance in Christ. Jesus was no thief, but he was hung between two thieves to remind us as thieves of God's glory that we too could spend eternity With Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm really sorry for.